the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand the signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, so that your faith might rest not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we do anticipate that day when we will rise. What a glorious thought. What helpful things. And Lord, we know that the time between then and your ascension into heaven, this is a time of trouble. There are wars and rumors of wars. There are earthquakes. There's famines. This is just a time of trouble, a time of tribulation. It is a difficult time. And Lord, we see that playing out today. Um, Father, I want to pray for peace in Israel, peace in the Middle East. Lord, the terrorist organization Hamas invaded and brutally slaughtered Jews in Israel. The, the pictures and the, the, the stories of what happened there are just atrocious. And Lord, I heard people often say this is demonic. And, and in a sense, if they mean it's evil, yes, it is. But it's tragically far too human. We are capable of such horrible things. And then, Lord, the cowards retreated into Gaza, mingled in amongst the Palestinian people and acted, or employed them as, uh, as human shields. And so, Lord, now there will be plenty of Palestinians suffering because of this evil group of Hamas. And so, Lord, I pray that you would break the teeth of Hamas, that you would break their arm, break their power, shatter their leadership. And Lord, that you would have mercy and protect your Jews in Israel and the Palestinians uh, in, in the, uh, Gaza from the, the horrors that are about to happen. And Lord, just have mercy on all of that. Somehow, Lord, would you bring the gospel to bear in the midst of all that horror in a way we can't see yet. And it, it grieves us, it brings us 
heartaches to think about the horrors that are happening. And Lord, this didn't surprise you. You announced this would be the time between uh, before your coming. This is what it would be like. And so, Lord, uh, may your church remain faithful and true. May we pray for those. May we seek to relieve the suffering of those. May we bring the gospel to those who are trapped in these situations. And Lord, it's easy to forget about Ukraine being invaded by Russia, a similar situation. Russia is committing war crimes, essentially, in, in the Ukrainian area. And so we pray that that conflict would be resolved soon, too. Have mercy, we pray. Lord, I want to pray for my brother Daniel Holmquist as he's um, transitioning from Calvary Evangelical Free to what comes next. Um, Lord, I know he and Linda this week are looking for new health care insurance and what will that look like and, and how will that affect his care as he's continuing to battle cancer. Uh, Lord, we trust that you have a plan for Daniel and for Linda and for their next steps. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bring them to the right church that needs their leadership, their example, their um, their discipleship, their love and their presence just needs them. Um, lead them to where they need to be. And, and we pray for Daniel's continued healing and, and restoration. Thank you for the good news this week. Have mercy on him and on Linda. And Lord, I want to especially thank you for my dear sister in Christ, Joanne. Lord, thank you that um, she has been a part of this church for a very long time. And she was not an upfront person. She was not um, uh, one of the movers and shakers in a way that we would recognize. But Lord, I know she was a prayer and she prayed often for this church and for um, the success of the gospel here. And uh, Lord, I thank you for that ministry that she had for so long with us. And um, Lord, I'm grateful that you did not make her linger too long, that you answered our prayers, you answered our requests. Lord, take her at the right time and don't let her suffering and her struggling outlast her faith. And Father, I believe that's exactly what you did. So thank you for the time we shared with her, the, the, um, the effect that she had on this church. Many here now don't know her particularly well, but um, there are many people who've been through this church who, who have seen her just be constant. And uh, Lord, just that constant walking with you is a testimony unto itself. And so thank you for her. Lord, as we turn now to your word, um, I pray that we would come under the conviction of the folly of the cross of Jesus Christ, of preaching that, not in human terms, but Lord, in terms that actually are exceeding human wisdom. Uh, would you bless us with the, the reading and the understanding of your word this morning? In Christ's name we pray, amen. So we're still in 1 Corinthians, we're still in chapter one. Um, last week we took a break and I talked about what baptism was. We went through kind of baptism because the way we left it at uh, verses 10 through 17 was Paul was talking about the unity of the church. And one of the things that was dividing them was who baptized who and, and that kind of thing. So we took a break from that to say, let's understand what baptism is and is not. Um, the way the section ended, though, is sets up for what we're going to see today. And so verse 17 says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So what you see is that baptism is not the be-all and end-all. It's not the most important thing. Paul's heart, his ministry, was to go and preach the gospel. But he goes on and he says he preached the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom. There was a very Greek approach to, to uh, rhetoric is, is it had to be fluid and had to sound great and be really nice and, and elaborate. And Paul says, that's not how I came and preached the gospel to you. 
Instead, he says, if I did that, then the cross of Christ would be emptied of its power. And he kind of left that hanging. And so I want to come back to that because what he's going to do in this section today is he's going to take that, that idea that the eloquent wisdom and, and, and beautiful rhetoric empties the cross of its power. And how is that? Because preachers spend a lot of time crafting sermons, and is, is that a violation of that? That's, that's not, and we'll see where he goes with that. So now we start into verse 18. And he starts, verse 18 is kind of the introduction to this center, or this section. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So the, the word of the cross comes to do two different types of people. And they, they're gonna have two very different reactions. There are those who are perishing and those, there are those who are being saved. And so when the cross comes, it is folly to those who are perishing. It doesn't make a lick of sense. But to those who are being saved, it's not folly. It is the very power of God. So this is still, if you're marking an outline, this is still the introduction. <laughs> okay, this is the introduction to the sermon. I want to unpack a little bit about that idea of it being folly to those who are perishing, but the power of God to those who are being saved. What would that look like today? I want to take this section that we're looking at and kind of transport it to today and try to interpret it in light of that. So in Paul's day, the Greek approach to wisdom was this rhetorical flourish, is how well it could be presented and that kind of thing. Um, what might that look like for us today? What might be the foolishness that people would hear? You preach the gospel to somebody and how might they react and go, well, that's just that's nonsense. That doesn't make any sense. And I just thought of three quick ways to maybe somebody would respond that way. So one of the things, and I've heard something along these lines before, the idea that your invisible sky friend turned into a human being and died and came back to life, that's just a fairy tale. What nonsense. How, why would people don't come back to life and your invisible friend in the sky didn't turn into a human being? It's, it's just a fairy tale. You, you people need to get over that. That's, that's not real. You're not being rational. Another one is when you talk about substitutionary atonement, that Christ died for our sins, they say, okay, look, if a father took his child and threw it in front of a bus to save a bunch of convicts, you would not say that was laudable. You would say that guy is a maniac. That person should be in jail. So the idea that God would take his son and kill him for everybody's sins, that's, that's abusive. That's cosmic child abuse. Why would you find that enjoyable? Why would you think that was a good thing? And then finally, if, if you get past the idea, those ideas, maybe somebody would go justification by faith alone. So what you're saying is all you have to do is believe in Jesus and you're saved, right? Do you know what that will do to people? If people think that all I have to do is believe and I'm saved, they're going to go off and sin like mad. It's going, to be, it's going to be horrible. These people are going to be terrible because they think they got their fire insurance. Why would you believe such nonsense? And so that's the people who are perishing. That's how they hear the gospel sometimes is they're looking at it and they're saying, it just doesn't make any sense. It, it's bad news. That is not good news for the world. How could you believe something like that? Now, why do they approach it like that? Because they're looking at it. They're evaluating it from human standards. Yes, if a father threw his child in front of a bus to save somebody, that would not be laudable. That, that, that's not a good thing. But to those who are being saved, when we look at the, the gospel, when we hear the message of Jesus' death for us, we're not looking at it from a human perspective and saying, what if a person did that? We're looking at it and saying, what is God doing in this? How is God active in this? And so 
when we talk about, let's say the first one, the idea of your invisible sky friend becoming a person or becoming a human, that's looking at it from human terms. Look at it from God's terms. We start with God as Trinity. God has eternally existed as three divine persons, different persons, they're not the same person, three divine persons, one God. Our God starts by existing in a way we don't. And, and it's, it's something we can't, we're gonna strain to explain. We can't understand how you could have three persons and one God and not blend them together or separate them apart. But we know it's true and we know it's glorious and so we start there. So if a God exists like that, if he could exist in that way, is it so improbable that one of those persons could retain his full divine nature, be still all God, not separate any of that out, not put it aside, and add to that a human nature? Is that such a far stretch? It, I can't explain it. Don't, don't ask me to, to, to get into all the details of it. But it's not impossible in God's terms. It, it's possible. And as a matter of fact, it's glorious because he chose to do that. He chose to come to us that way. And so we're not saying that, that Jesus and, and his physical earthly form, that he set aside divinity, he put things away and stopped being divine. What we're saying is he had these two natures. And the human nature did what was appropriate to human nature without sin. And the divine nature did what was appropriate to divine nature. And somehow they existed in the same person and he wasn't psychotic. That's, that's not, that's not my, my fairy tale friend in my head. This is a God who is larger than I can explain. If I was going to make it up, I wouldn't make that up. I would make up something I could explain. So, so to the person who's being saved, that, that, that idea that God became man and died in our place is not foolishness. It's glorious that a God would, would bow down and stoop down and do that for us. That's amazing. And what about this idea of, of uh, cosmic child abuse, that the father just slew the son? Well, we go back to the Trinity again. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they didn't have three different plans. They didn't have three different wills heading in different direction, and the Father won. So when Jesus said, I will go to earth, and I will take on a human nature, and I will suffer, and I will die in their place, that was his plan, too. That was the Father ordained it. The, fa the Son said, I will do that. that is what my, that's what I will do. It was his plan to do that. And the Holy Spirit came and said, and once you have done that, I will apply that message to people. It was the Holy Trinity, again, agreeing to do this. This isn't child abuse. This is something much more glorious. This is a God saying, I can't die because I, that's not the nature of God to die. So my son will take on a human nature which will live the perfect life they don't suffer the death they deserve, and then I will raise them again on the third day. That, that is not cosmic child abuse. That is a God who would go to any length to pursue you, to save you, to seek you. It, it's the power of God is what you're seeing. And the idea that, that uh, justification by faith alone is going to lead to sinful, licentious living, and you know, once you think you got your fire insurance, you're just going to go wild. Well, that's looking at it from a human perspective and saying, well, I got that, you know, I checked off that box and I'm good. But if you look at it from divine perspective, God didn't just say, now you're justified. Okay, go have a good time. He did so much more than that. He says, now, first of all, I'm going to justify you so that you can be with my family. You can come into my family because you will be declared righteous 
because of Jesus Christ. And then it doesn't end there. It gets even better. And then I'm going to seal you with my Holy Spirit. He's going to come into you. He's going to replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He's going to inscribe on that heart a desire to incline yourself to, to uh, my standards, to be who I am, to be more like my son, Jesus Christ, who came to be that model, to be that savior. And I'm going to work all through your life to conform you into the image of that son. That is not justification by faith alone, period, end of, of discussion. That's part of what God is doing in us. So if you look at it from human perspective, it's, it's silly. It doesn't make any kind of sense. Your, your religion is bizarre. If you look at it from God's perspective, suddenly it becomes something beautiful. And that's the difference then between those who are perishing and those who are being saved is, is the approach we take to that. So that's why God then says um, that... Uh, he will destroy the uh, wisdom of the wise and the, the discernment of the discerning he will thwart. That's a quote from Isaiah. And, and in the context, God is saying through Isaiah, Israel has been pursuing all kinds of weird things and doing all kinds of stuff. They've turned away from me and I'm just gonna frustrate the daylights out of that. I'm gonna make it impossible. And, and that's the, the promise that he makes. And so he brings it to us. And so then um, that comes to us as a promise of, when we bring the gospel into the world, what we have to do is we have to look at it from God's perspective and not try to conform it to the, the hip, cool, latest philosophical trend or something like that. We, we're going to bring it to them in the way that he intended it because his wisdom will upend their folly. That's what he's saying there. So then, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, starting in uh, verse 20 then. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not, God, has not God made foolish, pardon me, the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of the world, God did not know God, or the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased him through the folly that we preach to save those who believe. So he starts with this question, where is the, these three different people, where is the wise? The wise there is, is probably referring to the Greeks who prized wisdom. Wisdom was the great thing in Greek culture. Um, it, it was the most important thing. So where is the wise? Where is the philosopher? Where is the Greek philosopher who's pursuing wisdom? Um, let him stand up and answer here. And then the next one is, where is the scribe? It's, uh, it is the word for writing, and, and it's probably not speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees kind of thing, but it is speaking of a Jewish teacher of the law. So you get the Greek and the Jew again are coming before this, this bar. And that's why I think the last one is, um, where's the debater of this age? sums up those two because the the greek is saying this is not wise the jew is saying this is not you know um uh, there was the signs where's the miracles that kind of stuff so these are the debaters of the age god come and stand in our court and we will we will decide what what we're going to do here we're going to decide if this is acceptable and you see that come up in in scripture a lot right nicodemus comes to jesus in the night and he says <clears throat> we have decided that you are a good teacher He's like, well, thank you. You know, that was really kind of you. Jesus' response just flips him out. You must be born again. Wait, what? And then he wants to engage him. What, am I supposed to crawl inside my mom and be born again? Oh, oh no, no, you don't understand. Unless you're born of the spirit and of water, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And finally, Nicodemus gets to the point where he's like, I have no more words. Or would Paul, when he goes to um, uh, the Areopagus and the Greek philosophers say, we want to hear more about this and he starts preaching the resurrection. That just blows their mind. That, that doesn't make any sense. Some of them get upset. Some say, well, we'd like to hear more of this because they love to hear interesting things. So where's the debater of the age? 
we're continuing that message. We're carrying that message forward. We're preaching the gospel. Where is the debater? Where are you? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Isn't that what it looks like? And he says, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. So here's, here's the categories. The, the Jews want signs. They demand, um, how, show us some sign that we may know that you're the Messiah, Jesus. Demonstrate to us why you have the authority to say these things that you're saying. How'd that work out for them? Jesus healed a man born blind. Nobody had ever heard of anything like that before. He, he healed him by making mud and putting it on his eyes. There is a tremendous sign. This is a sign of all signs, a man born blind. You didn't remove a disease. You cured something that formed poorly in his head. And what's the, what's the response? He made mud on the Sabbath. How dare he? The sign wasn't going to work. They didn't want that sign. They wanted the sign that would agree with them. So they're asking for signs, they're demanding them, and then they're, they're saying, well, that's not good enough. It's, it's not meeting our criteria. But the Greeks, they seek wisdom. Now, the Greek concept of wisdom is not really like what we would call wisdom. It was more of a rhetorical approach to arguing things. And, and Greek wisdom could be found in, in very different categories. So, for example, the Stoics. The Stoics pursued wisdom, but their approach to wisdom was... You just have to take what the world brings to you. What's most important is your spirit. Keep your soul, keep your heart pure and directed on the right thing. Don't worry about what comes your way. You be good and, and, and right and do the, the honest and the noble thing, no matter what you are, if you're the emperor or if you're the pauper. And if you want to see a beautiful depiction of stoicism, watch the movie Gladiator. Maximus goes from a general who's victorious to... The emperor offers him his throne, and then the next thing you know, he's a slave in a Colosseum. And through the whole thing, he doesn't complain. He just takes it. That's, that's Stoic wisdom. The kind of polar opposite of Stoicism was Epicureanism. And the Epicureans thought, you know what? The soul is the most important part of us. The body is immaterial. It doesn't matter. We're going to shed it someday. So, man, make yourself happy. Indulge. It doesn't matter what you do to you, overeat, overdrink, sleep too late, you know, whatever it is that you want to do, you just go for it and enjoy yourself because you're, you're feeding your spirit. So you see there's two very different approaches to wisdom. That was Greek wisdom. And so when you talk about the resurrection, what? I'm going to shed this shell. This body's going to go away. The material is bad. What's really me is the spirit. And so that, those are the things that the Greeks seek wisdom and, and they'll take it in different forms as long as it kind of fits. And the Jews want something concrete. I want a physical, tangible miracle or I'm not going to believe you. So what might that look like for us today? How, how might that come across today? What would it look like for um, somebody to demand uh, a sign? Well, I think the way it comes across most often is... Um, Signs, since they're concrete, tangible things, what you'll hear people say is, does Christianity work? Does it, does it change people? Does it do what you're claiming it's going to do? I want to see proof that it works. And so I look at your churches, and your churches are a hot mess. Therefore, Christianity is not true. That's, that's what you would say is a sign, looking for a sign today, I think. So that's actually not an inaccurate accusation. The church has had problems, will always have problems. So why is that contrary to the gospel? Why is that ungospel-like to demand that we see these people become, why aren't you all wonderful people now? Because you believe that, you know, these things have happened. 
Well, it's a little complicated. I think what the reason that that's contrary to the gospel is because it's demanding everybody be from point A to point B as soon as they're saved. Everybody has to go to the same spot. And by the way, that spot is usually defined by the critic. There's no external standard. It's, they're not like I like them to be, therefore they must not be, this must be fake. But, but look at the gospel for a second. John 3:16. for God so loved the world, all of it, cosmos, everything, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that the whole world believes in him that whoever believes in him. The gospel is not categorical, everybody all at the same time. The gospel goes to individuals. It goes to people. And so when you look at somebody and you go, this person is not as good as I think they should be, what you're demanding is you're, you're setting a standard and you're saying they've got to be there. And they've got to be there now, or it doesn't, it's not real. But since God is dealing with individual people, since he's helping individuals, he's changing individuals, he's saving individuals, his spirit seals you, not the church, but you, and therefore the church, because we're all part of that. So what happens is you have some people who, when they believe, it is astounding. They stop drinking, they drop drugs, they quit pornography, whatever their huge sin was, God immediately delivers them from that. Praise the Lord for that. That is great. But generally what happens is whatever was behind those sins is still lingering. So if it's pornography, maybe it's a sense of isolation and, and, and lack of connection with other people and, and hard to have intimacy. And that problem is still there and the Lord works very carefully and patiently throughout their lives to help them with that. Or if somebody has anger issues, then the Lord might find where those things are going on. So the big sins disappear and then he's gonna work in those little ones. Whereas somebody else, might have a real sweet disposition when they come to the Lord. And you think, well, they're sanctified. And they have this much progress. They have moved just a notch. But what's going on inside is really not very pretty. You just don't see it because of their outward nature. What we're demanding when we say, does Christianity work, is we're demanding both of those people be at the exact same spot at the exact same time. This, the place I have decided they should be in their, in their sanctification. In reality, God is working in these people as a wise surgeon. Instead of just yanking organs out, he's going in and he's, he's carefully working in there because the part of the gospel is sanctification. He is making us into the image of his son. And he, we're all individuals. He doesn't just put us through a stamp machine and turn us into that immediately. So to demand a sign, to look at the church and go, this, the church is a mess. And it's like, well, yeah, it's full of human beings. But in these individual lives, the Lord is moving us forward. He's, he's, he's being faithful and he's moving us towards that conformity. So I think that's one way that the Jews demanding a, a sign today might be interpreted is when we expect people to be perfect and, and get upset and say that, that Christianity must not work because they're not. What about Jew or Greeks seeking wisdom? What might that look like today? I think that's a little harder because we don't have the same category for wisdom. Wisdom we, today we would think of as somebody who makes good decisions in the middle of murky situations and, and figures out right answers and, and when it's not so clear and that kind of thing. Um, but again, wisdom for the Greeks was not really carefully defined. It was more of a feeling. Uh, when I hear the rhetorical speech, then I'll know it's real. And so where I think that looks like today is a, a concept of authenticity. Are you authentic? What is authenticity? Well, authenticity is hard to, to nail down. It's hard to explain it, but I think what you think of with authenticity is, is it's this idea, 
that brand or that person or that thing is kind of like us, but cool. And therefore they're authentic. So for example, corporations try to market themselves as authentic. And, and one example I was reading in a, in a, um, a philosophy post uh, was talking about beer. This person had studied beer for a long time. And you know the big corporations, Miller, Coors, Budweiser, that kind of stuff, um, they were it in the 70s and, and 80s. That's what you drank. And that was, you know, they were good. And Budweiser tried to be one of us with their, their um, great commercials. Um, the one I think of the most is, was that? Anybody remember that from the Super Bowl? It was hilarious. That, that felt very us. You know, this is these guys coming to watch a football game and they're calling each other and they're answering the phone, what's up? And going back and forth. That's, they're trying to capitalize on the authenticity. But something happened about 20 years ago that blew that up. The craft beer market showed up. They changed the rules for brewing beer and now you don't have to be this big corporation. Now you can do it small. And now the small local brewery, that's authentic. That's the real thing. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna feel like I fit in. And, and they're one of us. They're just little people like us. Uh, what the author of the article said is nobody ever steps back and goes, but is it good beer? <laughs> is it better than a Budweiser? Um, a lot of them aren't. <laughs> a lot of them are kind of meh, but there are some good ones. So that's, that's that idea of authenticity. They'll be like us, but they'll be cool. And the problem with authenticity is you can lose it really quick. If you come across as corporate, is if you come across as, as doing this for personal gain or something like that, man, authenticity has gone and it's really hard to get back. So that's on a corporate scale, but we're talking about Christianity, the church. And so why might somebody who's interested in authenticity, how might they look at us? How might they evaluate how the church is doing in this? Well, one of the concepts of authenticity on a personal level is, is that it has to do with our individual, who we are, right? I, I, this is, I, I'm authentic, I'm authentically me. So um, um, a Catholic uh, philosopher, Charles Taylor, wrote a book, and, and one of the chapters is The Age of Authenticity. And this is how he described it. He said, authenticity is an understanding of life that teaches one of us his or, own, his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrounding to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or previous generations or religious or political authority. So authenticity on a human level is you be you. Be the authentic you, you be the real you. And so it's what Lisa and I call the Disney gospel. You know, just believe in yourself. You can be whatever you want and you can be great. And, and that is the message of the day. As a matter of fact, there's an author named Alan Noble and he wrote a book called Disruptive Witness. And he, he said that Disney gospel is just everywhere. You can't imagine anything without it. This is what he wrote. He said, it may be so ubiquitous that you can't imagine another option. Of course, we all pursue our own vision of the good life, which we derive from sources within ourselves. The sources we believe are the most authentic. What's the alternative to that? What, how else am I supposed to define who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing? And so when you look at Christianity, what they're looking is they're going, is this authentic? Is this real? And so when you say, well, yes, it is, they go, but you're telling people how they have to behave. You're telling them how they can and can't live. You're telling people who they can and can't love. That's not authentic. You're not making them authentic people. So then what's the alternative to that? Where, where does it go? Noble didn't leave us hanging. He continues on. 
He says there is an alternate way of conceiving of fullness and the good life, a shared cultural belief with transcendent origins. A shared cultural belief with transcendent origins, and that will define for you what is authentic and what is real. Why is that better than it? I just figured out myself? I have important news for you. You are not omniscient. You do not know everything. And so today you go, I'm going to define myself. I'm going to define who I am. I'm going to be the authentic, the real me. And then you find out something new. You go, oh, that's more authentic. I'll do that. And then you find out later, oh, that's not, people don't like that anymore. That's not authentic. Where is the authentic? You will never arrive at the real authentic you because you don't know everything. You don't have all the answers. So then let's go back to Noble's attempt to, to point us in the right direction, a shared cultural belief with transcendent origins. We need somebody who is omniscient. Maybe somebody who has designed the entire universe and you individually to fit in this universe who can come and tell you this is the right way to live. This is where you will find your fullness. That is perhaps more authentic. So one of my seminary professors, Kevin Van Hooser, wrote a book called Faith Speaking Understanding. And, and I found this really helpful to think of it this way. He says, there is nothing more authentic than being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ the prototype of true humanity. What the church has to offer the world is not only the message, but also the practical demonstration of salvation, the transformed identity of those who not only bear the image of Christ, but also stand in right relationship to him, the promise of reconciled communities. So if you're seeking authenticity based on, am I me, have I defined who I am? The message of the gospel is, is horrible. It's terrible. Because you're saying I have to conform to Jesus Christ? That's, that's not the authentic me. But what Van Hooser is saying is that is much more authentic than you will ever be if you just try it on your own. So the, the Jews seek signs. Does Christianity work? The Greeks seek wisdom. Is it authentic? What's the answer to that? Well, the answer is the Jews seek uh, um, signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. What is more authentic than God adding to himself humanity and living the perfect life, understanding exactly how humanity was designed to live, living according to that pattern in a broken world, a world that's not perfect, and, and living that way, that is the message of the gospel. That's who, what we cre preach is this Christ who came and did that. The world is so broken, it crucified him. That's the message. That is why it works. That is why it is authentic, is we preach Christ cru crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That, that can't be right. That can't be the way it works. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So if you're evaluating it from human perspective, the human side, this doesn't make any kind of sense. You people are nuts. But to those who are being saved, oh my gosh, this is the power of God. Look at what he's done. That is amazing. That is much more amazing. That's better news. So Paul goes on, and, and he's going to demonstrate this for us. He's going to show us what this looks like in the Corinthian community, starting in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Look around the room. We do not have any rock stars here. We do not have any, any global uh, political leaders running for office and attaining uh, uh, wonderful standards. Uh, we don't have Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, Kelsey with us. We're the low. We're it. And isn't it great news that this is who God came to save? And I think the reason is because the rich, the powerful, think they've got it all to begin with. They think they have actually achieved authenticity. I have arrived. So when you come and you preach the gospel to them, I, I don't need that. I, I'm, I'm there. I've got it. That's why Jesus said, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich, rich person in, enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, well, who can be saved? It was alarming to think that that was true. But that's the power of the gospel. Is it's, he, he, Jesus didn't say it's impossible for rich people to be saved. He said it was difficult, and there are rich people saved. But for folks like us, people who know we don't have it all together, people who know we're not, we're not rocking this thing, man, uh, we're not living the big, our best life now, for us, we hear that, and that's the power of God. And God chose us. So that even now we're looked down on and we're just common folks and, you know, ignored and, and whatever. But in eternity, we'll be the ones standing before the throne. And God will look, go, look what I did. Look how I did this. I didn't need their power and their money and their influence and their authenticity and their, 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 um, their ability to do all these great and wonderful things. I saved them. So Joanne is standing before the throne now. She was not much to be accounted for. She wasn't the, the mover and shaker. She wasn't the big person in the church or in the community. She was a simple woman. And now she's standing before the throne of God. And God is saying, look what I did. Look who I saved. It's, it's an amazing picture. It's, it's incredible. And that is to, uh, to shame the strong, to say it isn't up to you. This isn't a human endeavor. This is God actively working in the world to save people. God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing things that are so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Why are you saved? Why did you hear the gospel and believe? Because of him. Because God moved it. God ordained it that way. Therefore, you are in Christ. And Jesus then has become to us wisdom from God. The folly of the, pro the cross preached is the wisdom of God. And as we are being saved, that becomes the wisdom of God to us. He's become the wisdom of God, righteousness to us, sanctification to us, and redemption to us, so that it is written, let no one who boasts, or let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we talked about boasting in Sunday school this morning. If you're gonna boast, don't boast about how clever you are, how smart you are. I figure stuff out. I'm just on top of it. Boast in the Lord. Despite who I am, despite how clever I am, the Lord chose to save me and boast in him. 
That's the great news. So then Paul goes back to himself. He's, he's presenting his case to the Corinthians. In chapter 2, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. I didn't, I didn't try to take the gospel and fit it into Greek categories. I didn't come with to the God, I didn't come with you or to come to you with the gospel and try to show you how authentic it is. How it will enable you to be who you think you should be. He, if he did that, he would empty it of its power. That's not the message of the gospel. I didn't come to you proclaiming it with lofty speech, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. What's the most important message you can hear? Jesus Christ and him crucified. God took on human nature, he was nailed to a cross, and he died, and he rose again in your place. That's how you get saved. Don't offer me money, don't offer me your, your fame, your uh, Instagram follower totals, or your influencer status on, on Facebook. None of that counts. I, I determined to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. And when I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not of plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power. The strong aren't going to accept this because they're strong. But Paul comes not strong, but trembling, frightened. In, in Acts, what happened is he was in, in Athens and he preaches on Mars Hill. And then they chase him out, and so he goes to Corinth. So he comes from Athens to Corinth, and he came there not riding high on a horse. He didn't have many people who believed in, in Athens. Why? Because that Athens was the power center of the area. That was where the money, that was where the influence, the political strength, that was all that stuff. And so when he, he, he didn't have much there. When he came to Corinth, though, he came in fear and trembling and weakness. And when he preached, it was attended with power because it's not with words of wisdom. It's not with plausible ways of arguing things. It is with weakness that he does that. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's where our faith is. It's not how clever that conference speaker was when he presented the gospel. It is not because this person has the best apologetic method I've ever seen, and it works every single time. It's none of that. Our, 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 our Faith must rest not in the wisdom of man, but the power of God. So good news, if you ever tell somebody the gospel, even if you're fumbling for words, even if you barely get it out, even if you just you forget Jesus in the grave, we, we used to do that on occasion, is Jesus came and he died for you. And God can use even that portion of the gospel because it's the power of God that saves, not you. And so that's why Paul could come trembling and muttering and fumbling for words. And there's a church in Corinth because it's the power of God to save. So this goes back to what Paul was saying is this is where our hope is. This is where our unity rests. It's not in Paul is a better speaker or Apollos is just a more eloquent speaker or Cephas, well, he's got the, the authority, he's got the power or me because I'm gonna interpret Christ for myself. None of that. This is where it comes down to. This is the source of our unity. This is the source of the church, is the power of God. And, and it looks like foolishness to the world. So get used to it. People are going to think poorly of you. Oh, my. But it's okay, because what you're demonstrating is you can think poorly of me, but God is able to save me, and therefore God's able to save you. And, and it can happen. 
because it's the power of God. It's not my eloquence. It's not my great presentation. Thank God for that. It takes the pressure off. I don't have to nail it. I don't have to hit it out of the ballpark every time. This is the power of God at work. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we live in this world. We live in this society. We live in Western culture. We live in America in the 21st century. We live in Southern California where there's all sorts of displays of power and wealth and, and influence in our culture. And yet, Lord, we're none of that. We're not the power brokers in this. We're just people kind of bumbling along, being who we are, following after you. And Lord, your glory rests here. You, you show your power in saving us. Not because we've got it together, but because we don't. And so thank you, Lord, that you have saved us. And Lord, we pray that you would in some miraculous way, break through that money wall, that power wall, that fame wall in Hollywood and in LA and, and those areas, break through with the gospel and save more people. Lord, it's, it's more easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. Save some rich men. Show that you're more powerful than a camel going through an eye of a needle. It's not impossible for you. But Lord, I pray that you would continue to use the folly of the gospel, the foolishness of Christ crucified to humble those people first, to know that they can't add to that. They can't impress you through that to win that favor for you. And so Lord, would you be glorified in our little body of believers? Would you be glorified in, in Berean Fellowship in Palmdale? Would you be glorified in uh, First Baptist Church of Voron, would you be glorified in other churches here in the valley where the people are gathered to focus on who Jesus Christ is, to focus on the fact that he saved us, that it is the power of God in the, in the face of Jesus Christ that brings us to salvation. Be glorified in your church, I ask. Amen.